As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. So let our cry come before you, O Lord. Give us understanding according to your word. Let our plea come before you and deliver us according to your word. And our lips will pour forth praise, for you teach us your statutes. Our tongues will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And we sang together Psalm 67 because it's one of the great missionary psalms of the Old Testament with the hopes that God's word will go out to all the nations at the ends of the earth will call God their God and praise his name. And we hear about Jesus bringing the word to a Gentile in this passage. So Mark chapter 7, we really want to consider verses 24 through 30. Uh, But as it's been a while since we've been in the book of Mark and to remind us of the context of this passage, we want to start our reading back at verse 1 and read this verse in its context. So Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 30, but our text will particularly be verses 24 through 30. Let's pay careful attention now as we hear God's own word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. In our text. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon, cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, as we come to this passage this morning, it's one of the more difficult sayings of Jesus. I think we need to be honest about that right out of the gate. It's one of the more difficult things our Lord says, difficult to make sense of. And I would sort of submit to you that it's almost impossible to make sense of if you don't read it in the context of what Jesus has been doing. Um, that this word only makes sense, only becomes apparent and, and understandable if we think of it in light of what's been happening already in Mark chapter 7, which is why I wanted to read that whole section. Because even though it's a difficult word, I think through this difficult word, Mark does a wonderful job by the power of the Holy Spirit in shedding light on the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ, on the wonderful plan of salvation that God has revealed in these last days through our Lord And it's through this difficult saying that we really see beautiful, glorious things about God's love for the whole world. Um, And so as Mark gives us this story and as we see these truths expressed to us, we first see a test of faith. These difficult words are certainly a test of faith uh, to this woman. But she responds with this wonderful testimony of trust. And that's the second thing we're going to want to look at in this passage. And then finally, we want to consider the treasury of truth that we see revealed to us here uh, in this passage. That's how we'd like to handle this passage together this morning, a test of faith, a testimony of trust, and a treasury of truth. This test of faith uh, comes in the context of Jesus having been ministering in in the promised land uh, near the region of Galilee, and now he is leaving there, we're told, in verse 24, and going elsewhere uh, to the region of Tyre and Sidon, This would have been about 20 miles northwest of Capernaum up the coast by the Mediterranean Sea. This would have been going out of geographic Israel, going into a Gentile country. Uh, That's what's happening here. Uh, That's where Jesus is going. Um, And we're told that Jesus goes there not wanting people to know that he's there. Uh, This is one of those kinds of passing comments that Mark makes that we sometimes would say, I'd like to understand more about about that. What does that really mean? I think what that really boils down to is Jesus is not going there in his public ministry capacity. He's been going everywhere preaching, doing miracles. He's been publicly ministering throughout Israel. And I think this withdrawal to the region of Tyre and Sidon indicates that Jesus is not going there particularly in his preaching mission. He's not going there publicly preaching the gospel. He goes there to withdraw for a time. Uh, But Mark also tells us that it was pretty much impossible for Jesus to do this. 
Uh, he was not publicly ministering there. He withdrew there, didn't want necessarily everyone to know that he was there. But Mark said it was impossible for him to evade notice. He could not be hidden. Uh, the fact that he couldn't be hidden probably goes back to chapter 3, where we saw those great crowds following Jesus. And chapter 3 told us that the people in those crowds were from everywhere. Um, And one of the things that Mark told us in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, was that a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So a great crowd had been following him, some of part of which was from this area that Jesus has now withdrawn to. And what had people in this area seen and heard Jesus do? Well, we read about that too in Mark chapter 3. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, and whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. So even though Jesus comes, in a sense, privately into this region, not preaching, not publicly ministering in the ways he has elsewhere... He can't escape notice. There are people who've seen and experienced his public ministry. And the kinds of things they'd seen would have been the kinds of things that you talked about. The kind of word that you spread around. And that's why it couldn't be hidden who Jesus is who has come into the town. And it certainly couldn't be hidden from someone who has been affected by unclean spirits and who's had a little daughter who's been afflicted with an unclean spirit. This makes perfect sense in the telling of Mark's gospel, doesn't it? That stories would come from this region of this man who's healing diseases, this man who even just unclean spirits see him and they flee from him, acknowledging that he is the son of God. He doesn't even need to command them to be driven out. They flee before him. And you can imagine this woman who has a little daughter who's afflicted by a demon hears this. And maybe when she first heard the story, she might have thought, oh, if only someone like that was in our town who could help my poor little daughter who's under such miserable spiritual affliction. And then he does come. Um, And so it's hardly a surprise that in her dire circumstances with this little afflicted girl, that she would come to Jesus and do what she does in this passage. Throw herself at his feet. Um, it's, It's a measure of her her desire to have Jesus help her, her the, the profound grief that she's experiencing over this affliction of her child, and she pours her heart out to Jesus asking him to help. Um, she comes to help him, and before she's able to make this plea, and before we really hear Jesus' response, Mark gives us an editorial detail about who this woman is. Who is this woman who falls down at his feet. Mark says in verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, if we didn't know this story, if we were just hearing it for the first time, um, if Mark was sitting there recounting it to us, we might say, now, see, Mark, this is your problem as as a storyteller. You give us all kinds of details we don't need, and you hold back all kinds of details we'd like to know. And why are you telling us who she was? What does it matter that she's a Gentile? 
What does it matter that she's from Syrophoenicia and not the other part of Phoenicia? Um, Why does it matter where she's from? Why are you telling us this detail? We know who Jesus is. Does Jesus really care where she's from? Certainly he will help her. That's who Jesus is. That's what he does. Does, Didn't he say in his earthly ministry, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We might be tempted to say to Mark, what does it matter who she is? She needs help. And Jesus is here. Certainly he will help her. And that's what makes his response so difficult for us, isn't it? Um, So difficult to hear him say what he says to her. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And we almost want to ask, is this really Jesus saying this? It's so unexpected, isn't it, for Jesus to say something like this? Alexander McLaren, who was a Scottish minister in the 1800s, I think had wonderful insights into this passage. I'm very thankful for them. But one of the things he says is, our Lord's words are startlingly unlike him and as startlingly like the Jewish pride of race and contempt for Gentiles that we see in the scribes and the Pharisees. I think that's true, isn't it? This seems so unlike something Jesus would say. And sounds so like something a Pharisee or scribe might say. Uh, The children have to be first, uh, not the dogs. Um, That's what we imagine the the Pharisees would have said. They would have said, the children of Israel are the people of God. That's what God said, Deuteronomy 14.1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. We are the children. And it was common for them to talk about Gentiles as dogs, That was a common way they would have referred and taught the people to refer to Gentiles, in part because dogs were often not pets, but just unclean animals running the streets, and Gentiles didn't observe any of the cleanliness laws of Israel, so to them, they were just dogs in their conduct. And so that was fairly common. We're the children, they're the dogs. Is that how Jesus is talking? Right? This woman is desperate. She has this little daughter, afflicted by this demon. Did Jesus just really call her a little dog? Uh, What's going on in this passage? How do we understand what Jesus is saying? And the image that Jesus is using is of a a home at mealtime and imagining a situation where there are children at the table who are hungry and need to be fed. And there are little pet dogs that are part of the household. These are pets, not street scavenging dogs. These are little pets that are part of the house, and they're running around. And Jesus says, it would be kind of a monstrous thing, wouldn't it, if you saw someone with a, with a hungry child, and they brought food that was for the hungry child, and instead of giving it to the hungry child, they, throw, they threw it to the little dogs under the table. Um, that wouldn't be right. The children need to be fed. It would be wrong to take the food that was for them and throw it under the table to the dogs. The children should be fed first. That's the image that he's using. Not saying that makes it any more easy to understand what he's saying, but that's the picture he's painting. And it's a picture that we would all say, just the picture taken alone, that's right. You wouldn't want to take a child's food and throw it to the dogs leaving the child to go hungry. That statement makes sense in and of itself. 
but it's meant to make all of us do what she must have done and, and say, how would you react if our Lord said that to you? It puts us in the shoes of the woman who heard this statement being made. And it asks all of us to say, how would you respond if our Lord said something like that to you? To say this to a woman who was Gentile by birth and Gentile by culture. To talk about children and dogs. And this is very important for Mark because he was probably writing to the church in Rome that was also predominantly Gentile by birth and Gentile by culture. And it invites all of them to come in and to say, what does Jesus think of us? Um, And most of us here in Santee are Gentiles by birth or by culture. We probably don't necessarily always think of ourselves that way, but that's who we are too. And so the word comes to us and says, what does Jesus think of us? How does this woman take what Jesus has to say? It's a test of faith, isn't it? She's come to Jesus as her only hope, and this is how she respond, how he responds to her. How will she answer this? And to this test of faith, she responds with a wonderful testimony of trust. Right? It's, it's so wonderful because we don't know how Jesus said this to her. Right? There might have been a, a real softness in how he presented this. We don't know. The only thing we're told, the only thing Mark, as one person put it, shines a spotlight on in this passage is what Jesus said and what she said. And notice how she responds to Jesus in verse 28. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's remarkable. It's an easy part to pass over. And go on to what she says next. But the testimony of trust is there. What he says, she says, yes, Lord. She says what no one else has said in this chapter. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and said, no, Lord. What you're doing is not right. You're teaching all kinds of traditions that are wrong. You're letting your disciples do things wrong. They came with challenges. No, Lord. When his disciples came into the house, as she comes to the house here, his disciples came earlier in the chapter and said, we don't understand, Lord. What do you mean that the things that come in from outside don't defile you? We don't understand, Lord. You see why I say this is only really, we're only really able to understand the testimony of trust she gives here by seeing it in light of what other people had said. The other people who were not Gentile by birth or Gentile by culture, but were Israel by birth and Israel by culture, who when their Lord came to them said, no Lord, or we don't get it, Lord. But what does she do when she comes to him? Yes, Lord. There's an acceptance here without challenge or without question. She just takes what the Lord says as true. She accepts the word of the Lord and then she renews her plea before him in conformity 
to his word. Yes, Lord, what you say is true. And in light of the truth you've communicated, I renew my request. I submit myself to what you say. Again, I thought McLaren was so helpful when he said, what a constellation of graces sparkles in her ready reply. There is humility in accepting the place he gives her, insight in seeing at once a new plea in what might have sent her away despairing, persistence in pleading, confidence that he can grant her request and that he would gladly do so. We don't know how the Lord said what he said to her. We don't know how she said back to him what she said. We only have the words. But it's a simple, beautiful response that testifies to the trust she has in what he has to say. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Um, She fits her request to the truth of what he has said. And she says, I accept what you say about the children. And I agree that it would be wrong not to feed them first or to take their food and give it to the dogs. And so, Lord, I'm not asking for the children's bread. I'm asking for the crumbs that fall after the children eat. Because in your picture, it would be wrong to give the food to the children, the children's food to the dogs. But it's not wrong when after the children eat and the crumbs fall, the dogs scoop them up. Right? And you, you know that if you have a dog in the home. Right? If the dog were to jump up on the table and take food off the table, off the plates, that would be a cause for disciplining the dog. Right? Dogs are not allowed to jump up and eat the food off of your table. But if you drop something on the floor, most of us who have dogs know it's as good as gone already. They're going to they're gonna hoover that right up as soon as that hits the floor. And we don't really get mad about that, do we? And that's what what the woman says. I'm not trying to be the one who jumps up and takes something off the plate that's not mine. I'm content to have what's left over after the children are fed first. Lord, I'm not asking for priority. I'm not asking to be first. I'm not asking for priority. I just want a portion I don't need to be first. I just need to be fed. Don't send me away empty. That's essentially what she's saying to the Lord. That's why I think it's so right to say, don't we see a constellation of graces sparkling in that reply? That accepts the word, tailors the word, and continues to seek and to trust in the Lord she's talking to. What a wonderful testimony of trust. No back talk. Right? We, we talk about in the catechism when we pray to the Lord, thy will be done, that we would accept his will without any back talk. Jesus has experienced nothing but back talk in this text so far in chapter 7. Here at last he, he experienced someone who's not giving him any back talk, who accepts his will and acknowledges that his will alone is good. And her testimony of trust is richly rewarded, isn't it? It's, it's what Jesus wanted to draw out of her. You know, some people come to this text and kind of act, act as if she outwitted Jesus. 
He was ready to say no. She outwitted him, and he's like, all right, you got me. You can have what you want. That's not what's happening here. He's drawing her in through this test of faith to elicit this testimony of trust that he might grant the desire of her heart. And her faith is richly rewarded, isn't it? For this statement, for your yes, Lord, um, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And when she went home, she found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Think of how desperate this mother must have been to help her child and how wonderful it was for her to go and to find the child helped, for the Lord to have given her the desire of her heart and to have set her daughter free. That's why there's such a treasury of truth that's revealed to us in this passage, Uh, wonderful things that we can learn about God and his plans for his people in this passage. And the first and foremost is the the power and importance of persisting in prayer. Um, She might have gone away when Jesus said no. When Matthew gives us more details about this, she she continued to, to go after the Lord and to make these pleas of him. She persists in her prayer. And even when Jesus seems to be saying no to her, she continues to persist in prayer. Um, And the Lord is happy for her to continue to persist in prayer. I hope this passage reminds us to never underestimate the power of the prayer of faith. To persist in faith and persist in prayer to the Lord. I love what Calvin has to say about this idea. He said, though Jesus appears to give harsh refusal to her prayers, yet convinced that God would grant the salvation which he had promised through the Messiah, she does not cease to entertain favorable hopes. And therefore she concludes that the door is shut against her, not for the purpose of excluding her altogether, but that by a more strenuous effort of faith she may force her way, as it were, through the cracks." I love that. When the door seems to be shut, then you keep pushing and go in through the cracks. Isn't that a wonderful way of thinking about persisting in prayer? Because we sometimes feel like the door is shut when the Lord has not shut the door. And so faith allows us to continue to plead before our God and to push our way through closed doors as if through the cracks. Um, Think of that the next time you pray and the next time the Lord's answer seems to be no to the things that you've been praying for for a long time. That the door might be shut, but maybe I can push through the cracks and get at what I desire. Um, Because we don't know all things. We don't know when the doors are closed. This is the the importance of persisting in faith, persisting in prayer before our Lord who is gracious Because the Lord does this, right, not to shut the door against her, but to test her faith in order that he might build it up. That's a second glorious truth we learn from this passage, not just the the importance of persisting in prayer, but also that the Lord tests our faith in order that he might build us up. One of the problems we have with the will of God at times, and one of the kind of forms that our back talk can take to God, is why are you doing it this way? Because if we're honest, we're not, we always, sometimes we try to pretend that we're more holy than we are, but if we're honest, we read this and we might say to ourselves, why did he put her through this? Why this way? 
Why not just when she comes in her desperation, really needing what only he can provide, why, do, why does he go through this dialogue with her and not just give her what she wants? You know, why? Why, why this roundabout way, it seems to us? Well, we need to be reminded in those times that the Lord's ways are better than our ways, that his ways are higher than our ways. She came trusting Jesus, but what he put her through built her up in her trust of him. She came trusting Jesus, right? She came trusting in some sense that the stories she'd heard about him were true and that he could do for her what she needed done for her. She came in some sense trusting him. Did she leave him knowing him better and trusting him more? When this was all said and done, did she know Jesus better? Did she know his word better? Did she trust him more? Absolutely, right? The answer is yes to all of those questions. The Lord doesn't test us in order to tear us down or to sort of torment us for some unknown reason. He always tests us that he might build us up that he might fortify our faith. And the Lord's treatment of her here, as one person put it, is amply justified by its effects. His words were like the hard steel that strikes the flint and brings out a shower of sparks. Faith makes obstacles into helps and stones of stumbling into stepping stones to higher things. She came trusting him. She left knowing him and trusting him better. The Lord doesn't test our faith to tear us down. He tests our faith to draw us closer to him, that he might build us up in our trust for his word and for him. There are many other glorious truths we could draw from the treasury of truth that is this passage. But the last one I want to particularly draw our attention to is God's glorious plan of salvation. Um, that no one who trusts him is ever put to shame. And Jesus teaches something really important about God's plan of salvation to this Gentile woman in front of his Jewish disciples who will have to go out into a multi-ethnic church that will be both Jew and Gentile. He teaches them important things about how the Lord's plan of salvation works. And it's this really important thing that he teaches them. Just because the children are first, that doesn't mean the plan was ever for the children only. The children first does not mean the children only. God's plan has always been to feed the children first and then through them to feed the rest of the world. And that was the promise all the way back when he made the covenant with Abraham, right? There were all these promises for him and for his family and for his nation. But what did, Jesus, what did God say in Genesis 12, 2 and 3? I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is revealing something very important about God's plan, isn't he? It was always for the children first, but not for the children only. 
It was always for Israel first, but not for Israel only. Even in the original promise made to Abraham, the head of Israel, the promise was first you, and then in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the idea that Paul continues to pick up in the book of Romans, right? The wonderful verse we love to, to contemplate, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's an order in the way God does things, but that first never meant only. That first meant first, then second. First his people, first Israel, and then through them to the ends of the earth. There is a priority here to the Jew first and then to the Greek, but there's never meant to be only for them. Their claim was never exclusive. And God is teaching something really important here that is expanded on in the New Testament, that God's priority for Israel in the plan of salvation never meant preference for Israel or partiality for Israel. God was not saying, I prefer you to every other people in the world. Or that you, I'm more partial to you than to every other people in the world. Right? Paul even uses that in Romans when he talks about this distinction. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And Jesus is teaching something important about the fact that God shows no partiality when he makes the children first. One commentator said that first says distinctly that their prerogative is priority, not monopoly. If there is a first, there will follow a second. First implies second. Children and little dogs are all part of the one household. And Jesus is telling his disciples, this is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are missing. That God's plan was always to come first to Israel and through Israel to the rest of the world. He was never meaning it to be only for us. And Jesus is teaching something important to his disciples who are seeing how he deals with this Gentile woman about the nature of the plan of God. It was a first that always implied a second. That's why we sang Psalm 67. Because it's the great missionary psalm. And it reminds us in the Old Testament, the plan was always to all the families of the earth. That all the families of the earth would be gathered in. And who would do that? Who would accomplish that? Only Jesus comes to accomplish that. It was through Israel that Messiah would come into the world. And through Messiah that the world would come to know the Lord. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, but the oracles of God with which they were entrusted first always said, second, all who who come to the Lord will be saved. That's what the oracles of God said. Paul is quoting Isaiah 28 when he says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then when he goes from that Old Testament quotation to what he says in Romans 10, 11 to 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. That first that was given to Isaiah was a first that told them as God's people, he's going to second come to the whole world. And this truth helps us to keep from seeing God's plan of salvation either as our dispensational friends do and think there's two tracks. There's Israel and the church. There's two different people. Or as some people mistakenly think that the Gentiles have replaced the Jews, that God no longer has a plan for them. No, what Jesus is saying, the plan is working. It came first to Israel. Through Israel, it's coming to the end of the world. And it's coming to the end of the world in me. In me, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And it begins with this one Syrophoenician woman who needs desperately for a little daughter to be freed by the power of Israel's Messiah. And Israel's Messiah becomes her savior and the savior of her daughter. And by God's grace, the Holy Spirit is going to bring the truth of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. So that whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a first that was always meant to be a second. And the Lord Jesus has come into the world to make one people out of the various families of God. So they all come, and as Psalm 87 reminds us, we're all native-born citizens of our heavenly kingdom. We're all native-born citizens of Israel. It doesn't matter who you are, you can say, I was born there. I'm a member of Zion by grace because of what Christ has done. He's come to make into one people of God every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Jew and Gentile, male and female, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, all are one in Christ because of what he has done. And this is the glory of what Mark is telling a Gentile church in Rome and a Gentile, primarily Gentile church in Santee. You are not an afterthought in God's plan of salvation. He sent his son to go to the ends of the earth and to scatter that people so that one people of God might be drawn together in him and proclaim the excellencies of him who has drawn us all out of darkness into his marvelous light. Praise be to Christ and the kingdom that he has brought. Amen.